Genesis. Who is God? What is man's relationship with God? What went wrong? Why is mankind capable of both such beauty and such brutality? What is the nature of humanity? What is marriage? What about government, culture, the arts, the death penalty? How can man be right with God? What has God done to set things right? How can we know him? How can we find identity, meaning, fulfillment, hope, and rest? Genesis begins to give us the answers to these fundamental questions. Questions. So, let's dive into it. Genesis 1, verse 1. It's nice and short. You could have never practiced scripture memory in your entire life, and you probably have this verse memorized. The main idea is pretty simple. God, the sovereign king, creates everything. And in creating everything, the king is creating his kingdom. So Genesis 1, verse 1. We're going to use this as an introduction to the book. Let me read it for you. This is God's word for you today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you would bow with me and let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that it is living and active. Father, I thank you that this A book written almost 3,400 years ago still has so much to say to us today. How it is um, accurately summarizing and explaining reality in our lives and how this book introduces us to you, uh, the main character of this book. So, Father, at the beginning of this series, we just ask for your blessing. We ask for your spirit to use this series and to take your word and to use it to teach us about yourself, to use it to teach us about ourselves and about our sin, and to use it to teach us about your solution and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I just ask that you would use your word um, to teach us and help us to know you and to love you. That is our goal in this time, and we need your spirit to accomplish that on our behalf. And so I ask and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I've been agonizing over this sermon for a long time. I've read too much. I've been studying for too long. And there's so much that I want to squeeze into one short introductory sermon that I don't really know how to do it justice. But we're going to try. It seems like we have a short and easy task in front of us. Everyone knows this verse. It's only seven words in the Hebrew. But it is densely packed with rich theological truths. But before we can get into the verse specifically, let me try and quickly give you an overview of the whole 50-chapter book so that we'll have an idea of the big picture before we dive down in among the weeds. So what is Genesis about? Let me try and break it down. Most simply, there are two major sections of the book. There are chapters 1 through 11 and then chapters 12 through 50. Chapters 1 through 11 are referred to as prime evil history. That sounds like it's like very evil history. That's, that's not what the word means. It's a combination of the Latin word primus, which means first, and avum, which means age. Primeval means first age. It's earliest ancient history, primitive primeval history, the beginning. That's chapters 1 through 11. And then chapters 12 through 50 is patriarchal history, focusing on the fathers of the nation of Israel. So 1 through 11, primeval history, focusing on all people. Chapters 12 through 50, patriarchal history, focusing on one people. God's dealing with all nations, then God's dealing specifically with one nation. 
Right? That's the easiest breakdown. But there's, there's more to it than that. I mentioned at the beginning that our title Genesis comes from the Hebrew word toledot. And the true structure of the book is actually built around this word. You'll see it first in chapter 2, verse Four, where it says, after kind of the introduction of chapter one, these are the generations of. Right? And that phrase, that word, introduces a new section and a new development through the book, and it does it ten different times. Right? These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Terah and Isaac and Jacob. Each one of these ten is giving us a structure and a focus that the book is built around. So we're dealing with history. We're dealing with generations. We're dealing with people and God's dealings with them. And from the very beginning, right from creation, all the way through Joseph. The book ends with Joseph. And that structure's teaching us something. It's, it's directing us and guiding us. But still, it's, it's a little complicated. It's ten different sections. Some are really long. Some are short. People argue over them. This one may be a little bit simpler. Two big sections, primeval and patriarchal, all peoples, one people. But in each of those two major sections, there seem to be four major parts, four focuses. In 1 through 11, we're going to see four main events. Creation, fall, flood, tower of Babel. Right? Those are kind of the, that's the highlight of 1 through 11. Creation, fall, flood, tower of Babel. Four events. Then in chapters 12 through 50, we're going to focus on four main people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Right, so the whole story revolves around God and his working in these four events and these four people. And as we see what he does, we learn who he is. Listen, that's ultimately the point of the book of Genesis. It's actually the last book of the Bible that is called Revelation, but that wouldn't be a bad name for the first book as well, because as we're about to see in this first verse, it introduces us to God and it reveals him to us. That's the main point. God is the main point of the book, which is a different way to read the Bible than we're used to. We're used to reading it as a story about us. Right, so we're having a bad day. Well, we pick up our Bible and we, we dip into it for a pick-me-up, but for some moral example to emulate. We look for some good advice. Sometimes you do the, like the, the blind. You just pick one. Like, oh, this is what God wants to teach me um, today. Some encouragement about how great we are. When in fact, the Bible is not ultimately about us. It's about God. And the book makes that clear by starting with God, not us. And once we enter into the picture, it's only a few verses later that we mess everything up. Right? So let's put the focus where it needs to be. Let's read this book, always reminding ourselves that our focus is on God. Our goal in this series is to know him. And this is a great place to begin in that knowledge. But it's too easy in general to say that the book is about God. Of course it is, but we need to get more specific. What is it about? If you had to pick a central, pivotal passage in the book of Genesis, it would have to be Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. Notice that 12 is the transition between the two main sections. 
Everything builds towards 12 and before it, and then everything after it unpacks Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, God reveals himself to Abram, who will become Abraham, and God speaks to Abraham, and God makes promises to Abraham. And there are three main promises, a blessing, a seed, or a people, and a land. Blessing, seed, land. And this is the binding theme that we're going to see running throughout the book of Genesis. And it starts here in the very beginning. Right? So God creates everything, culminating in the creation of man and woman in his own image and likeness. Then in chapter 1, verse 28, God blesses them and he commissions them to spread that blessing over the whole earth. How are they to do that? By being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with what? With people with seed. And then in chapter 2, God takes his people who have been blessed to multiply and then he places them in a specific land, the Garden of Eden, blessing land seed. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, everything falls apart. The man and the woman reject God and they disobey him. They break fellowship with him and sin and death enters into God's good creation. As a result, judgment follows God's justice against sin and evil. But then there's this verse. There's this note of promise of grace in chapter 3, verse 15. In speaking to the serpent, to Satan who deceived Eve, God says, I will put enmity between your offspring. I hate the ESV's translation there. They think they got it wrong. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed is what the Hebrew literally says, your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right, so they sin, but right away God is promising to do something about that sin and to do something about Satan and his promise will be fulfilled in the seed of of the woman. Everything just continues to spiral out of control. In verse in chapters 4 through 11, Cain kills Abel. Cain's line is awful. Everything is so bad that there's a flood. Noah's spared. Noah gets drunk. Ham, Tower of Babel, judgment again, scattered. It seems that everything has fallen apart by the end of chapter 11. But then there's Genesis and God again graciously reveals himself and he again graciously speaks and makes promises in spite of the great sin and evil of the world. And those promises are blessing, seed, land. And so there's a pattern developing in Genesis. There's the divine initiation of blessing. There's the human initiation of sin. And then there is the divine and gracious preservation of the promise. Blessing, sin, and grace. That's the cycle of Genesis and the cycle of Scripture. And that grace comes in the form of this blessing, seed, and land. So as we're going to see at the beginning, God's people were in God's place under God's rule. That's Eden. That's, that's paradise. That's what we lost with our sin. And that's what God immediately sets about restoring God's people, seed in God's place, land under God's rule, blessing. We greatly ruin it. God graciously restores it. That's what is happening in the book of 
Genesis. God is rescuing his sinful, wayward people. And the good news for us, as we'll see, is that human sin, our sin, no matter how great, cannot derail God's greater grace. He will accomplish his purposes. He will save his people. He will establish his kingdom. His blessing will come to his people in his place. Nothing can stop him. We cannot thwart his plans because he is the king. He's the sovereign Lord. He is the one true and living God over all things. So that's the big picture of the book. Again, there's so much that we've had to leave out. We haven't even talked about covenant yet. We'll get to covenant. God accomplishes all that we've just seen through covenants. We'll see in the three main covenants in the book. We said that the linchpin of the book is Genesis chapter 12. Well, that is the Abrahamic covenant. God makes all these promises in the form of a covenant. So we're going to look at those. Uh, the covenant of works, the Noahic covenant, so the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, and then the covenant with Abraham. Everything is built around these three covenants. So we'll look at those in detail when we get to them. But a big idea, I want you to see a gracious God of blessing that cannot be stopped by a sinful, rebellious people. Blessing, seed, Land. Don't forget those three. And then we're going to see how ultimately all of those are about and get us to Christ. But oh, we're not there yet. We haven't even gotten to the beginning, which, according to Maria in one of my favorite movies, The Sound of Music, is a very good place to start. You've seen The Sound of Music, right? It's Do Re Mi, the song. Uh, she wants to teach them music. She knows she has to start with the basics, do, re, mi. But once you get those basics down, when you know the notes to sing, you can sing most anything. But once you get these beginning basics down, you're ready for most anything. Right, so now that we've used up half of our time, let's briefly look at this introductory verse. Seven words. In the Hebrew, let's, let's break it down and focus on four slash five of them. We're just going to look at beginning and God created and then heavens and earth. It's a pretty brilliant outline that I came up with this week, right? Um, but we're just going to walk through kind of these main, these main ideas. So the first word, as we said, is just beginning. There is no in the in the Hebrew. It's just reshif. Doesn't seem like that significant of a word or idea. But it is, because beginnings determine ends. Right? The Bible is making an absolute claim here. If verse 1 is true, then that changes everything. Many people have argued that Genesis 1-1 is the most offensive verse in the Bible, because if it's true, then everything else follows. Right? If verse 1 is true, it changes everything. And if all this happened in the beginning, then you are God's, and you owe him everything. What you believe about the beginning affects what you believe about everything else. Many have pointed out that Genesis 1 and 2 are polemical in nature. That's just a cool sounding word that means that it is, it is arguing, it is warring against something. It is attacking opposing ideas. 
which means we need a little more introductory stuff. Volumes and volumes have, ever, have been written about the author and the audience of Genesis. We need to know who wrote it, uh, who he wrote it to, and why he wrote it. Listen, the simplest answer is Moses. It's not the answer you're going to get in most college courses. If you ever heard the letters J-E-D-P together, that's about the book of Genesis and about all these crazy theories about how it was constructed. Um, but Moses wrote the book of Genesis. The Bible itself never makes any sort of claim about, or, or the Genesis itself never makes any sort of claim about who wrote it. It's technically anonymous, but there are other parts of inspired scripture that tell us that Moses is the primary author of the whole Pentateuch. Penta is five, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And most importantly, Jesus tells us this. Luke 24, 27, again, he says, and beginning, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? The law and the prophets is a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament. But Jesus substitutes Moses for the law, implying that Moses is the author of that law. He's even more clear in John 5, verse 46. Jesus is in dispute with the religious leaders, and he says, Well, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. I love that verse. Because first it says that Moses wrote something, and taking that along with a bunch of other evidence, we're safe in assuming that that something is the law, Genesis, and the first five books. Moses wrote it. But even more remarkable is the claim by Jesus himself that Moses, writing what we're reading right now, writing 3,400 years ago, uh, wrote Genesis and says he was writing about Jesus. Man, that's pretty amazing. And that's why we need the Old Testament. That's why we're not wasting our time spending a bunch of time in this Old Testament book. So Moses is our author, which means that our audience is most likely Israel after the Exodus. Probably sometime during the 40-year wandering in the wilderness, or right at the end of it, as they are finally poised to enter into the promised land. Right? So Moses is writing to a people that has been enslaved in Egypt, which was a culture that worships a multitude of false gods. They've now been wandering through lands and peoples that also worship all kinds of other false gods, and they are now about to enter into a land full of people who worship even more false gods. So Israel needs to be prepared. They need to be taught. They need to know what is true so that they can resist what is false. Thus, Moses writes Genesis. And he writes about the beginning because all these different people surrounding Israel had their own different beginning stories. We're always tempted to listen to and adopt the worldview of those around us. So Moses writes in part to protect Israel and us from doing that. What you believe about the beginning will determine much about what you believe about everything. So, for example, one of the most uh, famous creation stories at that time is the Babylonian, Babylonian account of creation, which is called the Enuma Elish, written at a sim right around the time Moses was writing. It's a very different story. In that story, the wild, kind of crazy young gods are too young and impetuous, 
And so the old gods are kind of mad at him. And there's kind of war between the young gods and the old gods. Long story short, Tiamat is the goddess of the sea. She's kind of the goddess of, of chaos, the forces of chaos. And she leads these wild young gods. Well, the old gods are tired of them. So they elect Marduk, one of the other gods, to defeat Tiamat, which he does. He entangles her in a net. He shoots her through the heart with an arrow. And then he rips her corpse apart. And he uses half of it to make the earth. And then half of it to make the sky. He then kills Tiamat's husband. And he takes his blood. And he uses his blood to create people. That's the Babylonian account of creation. It is a result of the war among the gods. The earth is created out of a defeated god. Pretty different story than Genesis. Right? That's going to affect how you view the world and life. There's another ancient story called the Atrahasis epic, where the lower gods are getting tired of doing work for the higher gods, so their idea is to create mankind so that they can be their slaves and do their work for them. Unfortunately, they do that, but then they realize that man, mankind is really annoying and really, really noisy, so they decide to wipe mankind out with a flood because they were bothering them. Okay, so you see there's, there's some similarities. There's, there's a flood. There's, there's creation of people, but there is great, uh, remarkable dissimilarity and differences. Well, that's going to affect how you view the world and life. Are we just slaves created by the gods to do their bidding? Are we made out of defeated god blood? Beginnings matter. Now, we know that these stories are myths. We are not at risk of believing that we are god slaves made out of god blood. But there is an equally ridiculous narrative of the beginning that we are surrounded by, that the whole world has swallowed hook, line, and sinker, and that I guarantee that many of you have just assumed must be true as well. In the beginning, there was nothing. But then all of a sudden, there was everything. I don't know. I, I don't know how. The, the, the Darwinian account of the beginning has been fully accepted as gospel when, in fact, it explains absolutely nothing and makes no sense. One of the biggest philosophical questions in life is why does something exist rather than nothing? Genesis is answering that question. Darwinianism is answering that question. And the two answers are radically opposed and they cannot coexist. It is one or the other. We don't have time to get into it now, maybe soon, but Darwinism has zero explanation for the beginning. They cannot explain how we got something from nothing. They cannot explain how we got life from non-life. They have no idea. I have a book specifically about it, uh, this atheist book that's kind of going through some of the options. Uh, the, the big theory right now is the multiverse theory, which means that, well, of course, there's life here in this universe because there's billions, actually, of universes, and they're producing other um, universes, and therefore, this universe was created by these other universes. That explains nothing, right? That takes just as much faith to believe as that, well, God created uh, everything because we can't observe these universes we can't see what happens one of the chapters in the book is about hey listen well maybe we are life created in the test tube of a superior alien species for some reason that's less ridiculous than the idea that just god created everything 
You need to be aware that you are existing and living and learning and working in an environment that hates Genesis 1 verse 1. And what you believe about Genesis 1 verse 1 is going to change and shape everything. Right? What we believe about origins and beginnings really matters. Are we just the blood of gods created to be their slaves? Are we as one philosopher famously put it, the outcome of accidental collection of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the beauty, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Or are we created in the image and likeness of a good and benevolent God to live eternally in perfect, unbroken fellowship with him. Those are two wildly different accounts, and they're going to affect at how you look at life. We need our minds shaped by the biblical beginning, because everything rests here. There was a time when none of this existed, and then out of nothing, God, by the word of his power, created everything. That is the only explanation for why there is something rather than nothing. That is the only answer that gives life value and meaning. That's the beginning. Uh, I titled this sermon, The the Beginning of Everything. That's in part because I'm not very good at coming up with titles, uh, which is evident here because that title is not technically true. Because this is not the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of everything but one thing, right? of one person. That's the key. There's a radical distinction between creation and creator. And that's the next word. In the beginning, God. That's how the Bible starts. The Hebrew word is Elohim. And one of the simplest and most obvious observations is also one of the most important. One of the most main things that verse 1 is trying to convey in the beginning, verse 1 of the whole Bible, one God. That's all. And this is, this is fundamental. This is what separated Israel from everyone around them. This is one of the main things that Moses wants to remind them of. And by putting it first, the very first, Moses is clear that this is very important. We've heard some of the other beginning stories. There's the whole Babylonian pantheon of Marduks and Tiamats and other gods. There's Egypt, there's Ra and Osiris and Isis and Horus and all these other gods. In the midst of all of that, Genesis 1-1 drops like a hammer of descent. This was new. This was different. One of the first Things affirmed about the identity of the God revealed in the Bible is that he is the only God. Later in Isaiah 45, 5, he'll state more clearly, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no other God beside me. That's what Genesis 1-1 is affirming in the face of all these competing uh, theologies. As one of the, one of the um, fundamental confessions of the Hebrew faith would become the, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6-4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh our God, the Lord Yahweh is one. So what? Verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If there is one God, 
And if he has done what this verse and what this chapter and what this whole Bible says, then the only logical response is to fall down at his feet in love and worship. Moses, from the very beginning, is trying to set your focus on where it needs to be, on the one God. So it is not an accident that God is the first actor and the first subject of the first sentence of the first book of the whole Bible. We are being introduced to the foundation of all reality. We are being introduced to the sun, the the S-U-N sun around which everything else is supposed to revolve. And it's almost as if this was written specifically in light of God's awareness of our great sinfulness and the great manifestation of that sinfulness being our selfish, obsessive focus on self. It sin did not surprise God. God knew our tendency would be to read everything through the lens of, of self. The attempt to make self the S-U-N son around which reality would revolve. Our obsessive desire to pray, my kingdom come, my will be done. God knew that we would be no different than Narcissus of Greek mythology who so loved himself and his own beauty that he died while staring at his own reflection in the water. That's sin. That's That's us. God knew that our tendency would be to read the Bible as if it were about us. He knew our constant temptation would be to live life as if it was about us. So don't miss the significance of how this whole thing starts. Not you, but God. Not me, but God. From the very beginning, we're being told what to focus on and what the point is going to be all the way through to the end. God. And scan over the rest of the chapter. Notice the repetition. Moses is trying to drill this into your head. All right? Genesis chapter 2 is a poor chapter placement. Remember, those, those numbers came a lot later. Genesis chapter 1 should actually go through verse 3 or verse 4. And if you count to verse 4, you have the first 35 verses of the Bible, and God's name is repeated 35 times. In the beginning, God, the Spirit of God, and God said, and God saw, and God said, and said, and said, and made, and blessed God 35 times. Surely even we cannot miss this repetition and the point of this repetition. God is the point. He is the central focus of Genesis 1, which is about the beginning of everything, of all reality. Thus, the point is that God is the central focus of everything, of all reality. And we are being introduced here to him. We've been studying, as I said, the the second London Baptist Confession of Faith in Sunday school, the 1689. The most important Baptist confession historically. It's It's the confession that our church's confession is based loosely off of. It's a summary of what the Bible teaches about key theological topics. Well, here's its summary paragraph on the doctrine of God. This is, this is beautiful. Um, listen, listen to what it says. Here's the God we are being introduced to here and the God we worship. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself himself. 
He is infinite in being, in perfection. His essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. He is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only has, who alone has immortality, dwelling in the light of which no one can approach, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things together according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's a lot. That's a lot. But that doesn't even begin to do justice to the God that has introduced here. That is 66 books of scripture condensed into a couple short sentences. That is God, Elohim, our maker, our Lord, our savior. And man, if God is really all of those things, if that's the person of God as scripture reveals him, then there is nothing more important than knowing and in knowing, loving this God. Why would we not want to do that? We're such fools sometimes. We love Netflix and Facebook and the Mets and video games and bank accounts and pleasure and, and comfort and ourselves, right? How, how pitiful and pale a, compet, uh, a competitor these things are to this God. How unbelievable is it that we still struggle to love and care about such things more than we care about this God? Infinite in being, in perfection, eternal, almighty, perfectly holy, wise, most Loving, gracious, merciful, abundant in goodness, forgiver of sin. I want to know that God more. I want to want to know that God more. I want to actually believe and then live my life as if all of this that we're reading is true. I want to actually love him more than all those stupid things that grab for and compete with my love for him. I'm trying to think about some of those things. Like, like, Two months ago, like the Avengers movie came out. I was pretty excited about that. It was going to be so big and great characters and high stakes and all these movies come together in one movie. And it was a really good movie. It lived up to the hype. I'm pretty excited about the upcoming Carolina basketball season. We should be the best team if things go well. We have another shot at the national championship. I'm already thinking about that and getting excited about that. I've been family free all week, so I had a little extra time. I took Thursday to go work in the city so that I could also go to the Strand and buy some books, so that I could also go to Stax Ice Cream. Ice cream is my great food weakness, and they have donut ice cream sandwiches. I don't need to say anything else about that. It's a donut with ice cream in the middle, and it's fantastic. You should go get it. I just got back from vacation, and it was a wonderful Week. It could not have been much better. All of these are good things. These are things that we can and should enjoy. Movies and basketball and good food and vacation are good things. My problem is that I can let these good things easily take over and become the things. 
The thing that brings me joy. The thing that gets me through the work day. The thing that I love and live for. And I can quickly forget that this God that we're being introduced is the thing that graciously gives me these good gifts to enjoy in their proper place for his own glory. Right? So be honest with yourself. What do you most love? Really, what is it? What do you most think about? What do you most daydream about? What do you spend the most money on? What occupies most of your time? What gets you up in the morning? What keeps you up at night? What truly brings you joy and delight? Is it God? If it's not, if you, like me, struggle at times with this, well, it's because we may not know him as much as we think that we do, which is why we need Genesis. This is why we need to be continually confronted with this God and who he is and what he has done. This is why you need to be continually praying with me every day and with the Father in Mark chapter 9. I do believe, help my unbelief. So we're going to use this series to get to know God Better. We're going to talk about him more next week because I don't have time to do it this week. I had some great alliteration for you. We were going to see that God creates everything and he is personal and he is perfect and he is powerful. Um, But we'll get to those um, next week as we look a little bit about the nature of God in more detail as we see him again in verse 2. But I don't want you to miss at least how God-centered all of this is. Our goal, by the grace of God, is that our lives would increasingly become as God-centered as Genesis chapter 1. So we're just going to stare at him. We're going to study him. And we're going to pray that he would help us to love him. So in the beginning, God. Too much. I'm going to blaze through the last. This is the Matt specialty. A quick last two points. There's too much to do. Um, That's the second heading, third heading in the beginning. God, what does he do? He created. So we learn much about the person of God by the work of God. We learn about who God is through what God does. The ancient Apostles' Creed, a summary of the core doctrines of the faith, starts off like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. it's, It's noteworthy. That in the very first introduction that we get to God, the very first thing that God chooses to reveal about himself to us, he starts off with the fact that he is the creator. And it's a great Hebrew word for create, bara. It's interesting because it is only ever used in the Bible with God as the subject. This is a specifically divine activity. We can make, right, but we do not create. Only God And as we'll see next week, he's not creating something out of already pre-existent something. He is making something out of nothing, which is referred to as creation X out of nihilo, nothing, out of nothing. Right. And we'll see it. He does it simply by speaking. We read it in Psalm uh, 32. He creates with his powerful word, which means that speech is fundamental to reality. Words, God's words, create reality. The king is creating a kingdom out of nothing, and he is so powerful that he can create this entire kingdom of creation by simply willing it into being through his words. That's a huge claim. 
Reality is either the chance product of meaningless, purposeless, evolutionary processes, which, if true, there can be no meaning or purpose or goodness or beauty or any of those things that most give life meaning, or reality is the purposeful product of a personal and good and sovereign God that speaks and loves and saves. That's, there's your meaning and purpose and goodness and beauty. God creates all of it. And one question that that, that raises is why? You know, why did he do this? Why did he create all of it? I think many of us implicitly believe that God created us because we're pretty great. Or maybe he was a little bit lonely. Maybe he needed a people to praise him and to make him feel better about himself. But we know that can't be right. Why did he create? Back to the Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 4. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create the world and all things wherein in the space of six days and all very good. Why did God create? Ultimately, creation is a grand display of his greatness and of his glory. We're going to keep coming back to this. It's not ultimately about us. It's about him. But that's actually a good thing for us because he is God and we are not. It should be about him. If he is that great and if he has done all of this, then we should want things to be about him. But the good news is that he creates us, as we'll see, to be like him and he creates us to be with him. This God that we're seeing, which is so amazing, in some way makes us in his image and his likeness and then shares with us his good creation and says, come live in fellowship and relationship with me. That's stunning. This God wants to be in relationship with this sinful person. That should astonish us. The king invites us to be a part of his story. The king makes us and he writes us into the story. When we ruin the story, the king then enters into that very story to rescue us. So ultimately, it is about him and the display of his glory, but that display includes blessing and saving and seeking the good of his people. God created Last thing is real quick. we got to be done. So much more to say. We'll continue next week. What did he create? The heavens and the earth, which means what? Everything. That's, that's all heavens and earth mean. It's just kind of like the, the bookends of everything. He created all of it. Everything that exists, exists because of him. All that is good in your life was created by God. All the beauty of this world was created by God. Your loved ones were created by God. The point that Moses is trying to make is that if this is true, that this God exists, and that if he has created everything, well, the point is then that he is the king. He is the sovereign king, which implies then, of course, that you are not. And I am not. And this raises a problem for us because all of us live our lives as if we were the sovereign king. We live our lives as if life is about us and for us. We do not live in light of the reality of a truly sovereign king. So this verse should 
convict us. I read a story this week about a businessman sitting at a church on a sermon of Genesis 1-1 getting convicted because, oh, God's the king, and I'm not, and I'm living like I am. You are living like you are. I am living like um, I am. There is a God and we are not him, which is bad news for us because we have rejected him. We have rebelled against him. We have set ourselves in opposition to the God who begins everything, which is why we needed another beginning. And this is why the New Testament twice purposefully starts off by purposefully echoing Genesis, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John 1.1, even more explicitly, just steals from Moses and Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is why doing Genesis right after Colossians is perfect, because we've already studied this in Colossians 1.15. Jesus was the image of the invisible God. By Jesus, all things were created. But not only that, he is also the beginning, Paul writes, the firstborn from the dead. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. As we'll see next week, we're going to focus on this. Our one God is three. As we see the spirit hovering over the face of the water, as we hear God say, let us create man in our own image. As John and Paul say, Jesus is God and Jesus is the one who creates. He is there at Genesis 1-1. He is the beginning and it doesn't make sense yet in the context of Genesis 1-1 but already by Genesis 3 we see our need for another beginning, for a new beginning. Here God is creating physical life. We chose spiritual death by our sin so we need God to also come back in and create new spiritual life and he does that through Jesus Christ who is our creator and Savior. God is the sovereign king. We have all rejected him. And the amazing thing is that he comes for us. We reject him. But instead of him rejecting us, he rejects his son. We deserve death for our sin. The penalty for treason against the king is death. But Jesus, who is our creator God, enters into his creation, takes on flesh, takes on our sin, and dies our so the sovereign creator king is also the sovereign savior servant. Our great God becomes man. The one who begins all things, begins all things again by coming to rescue us, by dying for us so that we might live. That's the end. But already here at the beginning, we're getting echoes of that. And we're being pointed forward to that. And it's just going to get more clear as we progress through this chapter and through this book. So listen, there really is no specific application this morning except believe. Moses wants you to know this God. Moses is telling you that he is reality. He is the beginning. He is life. Turn to him and trust him. In the beginning, God created everything. And that changes everything. We need to know this God. Let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, it is such a privilege uh, to be able to preach uh, your word. Father, it is also terrifying uh, sometimes to preach your word. 
So again, I pray that your word would be front and center. I pray that the truths of your scripture would be what we take home here today. Father, I pray that you would begin to show us yourself. Father, we know this verse. We're overly familiar with this verse. We're, we're numb sometimes to some of these verses that we've heard so much. Father, open our ears, open our eyes. Father, help us to see the radical claim that this verse makes about reality and the radical claim that this makes verse. This verse makes about our lives. Father, help us to see and believe and begin to live as if you truly are the sovereign king of all creation, the sovereign king of our lives. Father, we thank you for creating us. Father, we thank you for giving us life. We know that we would not exist without you. We thank you for giving us new life in Jesus Christ. We know that we did not do that. We know that we could not have done that on our own. And so we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die our death so that we could live. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that has not experienced that new heart and that new life. I pray today that you would grant them faith and repentance. I pray that you would give them new hearts and a new life. I pray that you would draw them to Jesus Christ and lead them to put their hope and their faith in him who is the author, the creator, the sustainer of all reality, and the savior of his church. Father, help us to know him and love him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.